I heard someone call out, bacon, bacon. It was an act of worship. Well, how, amen. We have an amen to the bacon. An altar of bacon has been built. No doubt it would happen in Mississippi, right? Well, how many of you think I could preach a sermon seated the whole time? No way. How many of you, how many of you think I can't preach standing up? Just raise your hand. Yeah, a few of you. Thank you. You just incur the wrath of God later. Trust me. Trust me on that. Hey, there's a great passage, Psalm 34, verse 8. It says, and oh, how I love this. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And a couple of things I love about that, like you love bacon. I love this passage because, number one, it involves our senses. And if you grew up in a home or church environment where it was very cerebral or cognitive, that's a challenge for you, isn't it? In fact, I remember the first time I ever saw that passage. I heard it read aloud in a church. It was a little uncomfortable for me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Spooky a little bit. But I love that it invites us to, uh, to the senses, to explore our senses, that our senses are involved. And the second thing I love about it is an invitation. It includes an invitation. Come on. For the next few weeks, we're having a series called Come to the Table. And the idea there is an invitation for you, an invitation for our church family to think about this very thing and the invitation that God gives us. In the early part of the Bible, in fact, the last um, part of the first chapter in all of Scripture, it says that every, uh, every tree that bears fruit, every seed that yields um, Goodness, that it is food from above, that God gives us food. What kind of food does God give? Apparently, uh, gluten-free food. Um, I don't know what gluten is, but evidently it tastes really delicious. But God gives us food. In fact, the Scripture says that there's a couple of kinds of or types of food, if you will. I'm not doing the pyramid food group thing on you. But the Bible says in Psalm 127 too. It's really explicit. It says to us in this passage, and I'm contrasting the two of these, but it says in Psalm 127 that there's the bread of sorrow. That there's food that it's just sorrowful food. Uh, well, what could that mean? If you know that passage, we preached it here before. It's in the context of, is the Lord building the foundation of your home? And if God is not at the center of your life, if He's not included in your family then that's sorrowful food, the Scripture would tell us. Maybe there's contention in your home. When you come to the table, have you noticed that people come to the family table, they come with an appetite, but also an attitude? Then maybe there's contention. Or maybe there's just distraction. But Ecclesiastes 9.7 tells us that there's not a sorrowful bread, but there's a bread of joy. In fact, it says, Go. Eat the bread of joy and drink the wine of a merry heart. Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words. He said, God cannot endure that unfestive, mirthless attitude of ours in which we eat our bread in sorrow with pretentious, busy haste. Through our daily meals, God is calling us to rejoice, to keep holiday in the midst of our working day. Unless you think Bonhoeffer didn't have anything to worry about. You need to know that he wrote those very words while he was teaching in an underground seminary 
in a Nazi camp, being persecuted by the very people that would soon take his very life. But he penned those words. There's a food of sorrow and there's a food of joy. Tell on a couple of our folks here. Thursday night, Sue and I went to the Johnston's home. You guys know Britt and Scarlett, some of you. And we celebrated. We celebrated their youngest saying a couple of weeks ago that he had accepted Christ as his Savior. They sent us a text and we text back and we were just so happy. Brent and I are talking about him being up here soon and maybe baptizing his boy Jesse. Wouldn't that be great? And we rejoice with them. And what I love about them is we gathered at Brent's parents' house up in Madison and his brothers were there and sister-in-laws and their children. And we had a blast. We gathered around a table, a couple of big tables actually. There was a lot of us. We took communion before we sat down. A preacher had to lead that. That's the tough thing about being a preacher. They always call me to give prayer at the family meals. Every holiday, every gathering, i got to say the prayer. I'm bitter about that, really. But I led the family in communion, which seemed a little more close to the New Testament, you know, around the table. And, y'all, we just had a blast. There was cake. There was gifts for Jesse. None for me, but some for Jesse. And, man, we celebrated. We laughed. And if you know Brent and his brothers, man, one's a doctor, one's a lawyer, but they're, you know, they... They're, they're crazy guys. And we all laughed. We were singing at the top of our lungs. Someone would mention an old 80s rock ballad, and we would sing it out loud. And there was an opera singer, a classically trained opera singer at the table. And she would sing out loud, and I would drown her out and break glass above her. <laughs> but it was a great moment, not just for me to showcase my talent, but for us to sing and to laugh and to be together. But I couldn't help but think. I couldn't help but think about how cool it would be to get an invitation to their house for the holidays. But you know, I thought about my own home and our own table and how much joy is there. Are the greens eating the bread of sorrow or the bread of joy? Are we festive? Is there celebration? Are we bringing holiday into the work day? I'm not talking about the day of year, time of year. I'm talking about the everyday ordinary. You know, when Paul said to the church at Corinth, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of Christ. He, he was teaching something so profound there that little things in your life and mine can bring Christ's glory. It's not the grandiose things. It's not the sweeping, majestic moments when background music is playing and you just came back from the retreat. It's the everyday, ordinary moments that Jesus wants to redeem. And those little things in our eating and our drinking, our laughing, our playing, our relating, oftentimes around the table, can bring Jesus so much honor. The Bible says a lot about a table. It says a lot. And I ask you this morning, early on in this message, I wonder if you're spending time around the table with people you love. The Scripture tells us Uh, early on, that God cared about tables. In fact, the Scripture tells us uh, there was a season where God uh, had a tent. And this tent was to signify to to these nomadic people that God always wanted to be with them. He always wanted to be known and to be remembered. He wanted to be their provider. He wanted to be real to them. And in this tent, there wasn't much furniture. But there was a table. And the scripture tells us, it goes into exquisite detail about the table. I won't get into that, but it just says that the table was lined with gold. 
And that there was a pitcher, a pouring type of pitcher for the wine and a spot for the bread. It says this in Exodus 25, 30. Put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. Got any critics? Got any enemies? God always has. And some in that day asked this question in Psalm 89. It says this about them. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? What would David say in the great shepherd song of Psalm 23? He would say that, God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Funny thing about eating, isn't it? Funny thing about appetite. You don't, want, you don't want to eat. You're not hungry if you're anxious. If you're worried about something, if you're sad or you're depressed, you lose your appetite, don't you? And David is saying, hey, let me tell you about God in the wilderness. Let me tell you that God can be there in the most difficult of times, in the most unlikely places. God can set up a tent, and in the tent He can put a table. And that table can be a place for me, even with stuff to worry about. I can sit... At His table, I can experience His peace and I can rejoice. I can eat the bread of joy and drink the wine with merriment. When Jesus came, the table continued. I would say even more so as I've studied the Scripture. It tells us in Luke chapter 5 that He came in and dined and He sat at a table with a tax collector, with a, with a Levite, it tells us in Luke. In Luke 7, it says there were, there were more seats at the table, but there were religious people. The chairs were full of religious people on this side. And over here, there was a woman who had a very sinful reputation. You remember this? And there was this story about this alabaster jar and the perfume that was broken. And it sort of challenges us. It changes those categories of our minds. Well, Jesus was himself poor. Jesus cared for the poor. The foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus identified with the poor and told us to. But what would he say now that this jar of perfume, expensive as it was, was broken? And man, he turned. He turned, turned the tables, if you will, and taught an important lesson. In Luke 10, a lot of you know, especially you ladies, you know about, you know about Mary and Martha. You know that he dined at a table with those good friends. And in Luke 14, he dined at a table with another Pharisee who questioned him about healing on the Sabbath day. And in this passage, it says this, Luke eleven thirty seven. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went and he took his place at the table. This morning... Are you spending time at the table with people that you love? And who does Jesus want us to love? What do we do at a table? This morning, I want to share three simple things. And even though they're obvious, I want this all in these few moments to set up the Lord's table. The practice we have as a Fondren Church family of taking the elements the final Sunday of every month. What do you do around a table? The most obvious is you do what around a table? You eat. You eat around the tables. We have friends that we double date with some. And the more we've been double dating with them lately, the less we want to. 
but they don't go to our church so we can talk about them. But they're just ultra-selective, picky-type people. You know anybody like that? So ordering with them at a restaurant, is, it's, it's a rugged experience. I'm trying to differentiate my, you know, between me and them because so, I know they're spitting in their food, right? And I'm like, I'm, I'm not with them. I'm not like them, but I'm sort of, you know. But the wife, I mean, she, she'll order like the filet pan-baked salmon or something with uh, sauce, oyster-type cheese, broccoli sauce. And she'll say, no, instead of the salmon, I'll take the perch and I'll have it uh, fried instead of done that way. And instead of that shrimp and stuff sauce, I'll take the whatever, da, da, da. You know, she changes it all. The guy, he wants everything on the side. He wants his salad dressing separate from the salad. He, he wants his spaghetti sauce separate from the spaghetti. The ice separate from the water. The hydrogen molecules separate from the oxygen molecules. You know what I'm saying? It's just this whole, it's a weird deal. But when we sit at a table at home or dining out, the idea, the big idea, the obvious one is that we're eating. But have you noticed that as a nation, we're stuck somewhere between being gluttons and Weight Watchers? There's an interesting phenomenon. If you go into a store, really any type of store, I did this this week in a Walgreens and you walk in. And you'll see those racks of magazines, right? The ones with the very beautiful people. They're tan and tight and trim, men and women, glowing on these magazines. And they're just, they're just chiseled, they're ripped. It's the result of diet, exercise, and genetics, photoshopping, digital imagery, right? Trickeration. And next to those magazines are tubs of candy, shrink-wrapped chocolate donuts, Cheese snacks, nachos, right next to refrigerated, caffeinated, sugary drinks, right? And we're somewhere between Barbie and the bulge. Somewhere between thinking thin and living fat. And the Bible says this about food. Why, by the way, don't we ever preach this? I get emails from time to time, Pastor, when are you going to preach against... You know, when are you going to preach against this? When are you going to come down hard on this? But you know, food is one of those things that really trips us up. The Bible says, it teaches us that food is a gift. It's a gift and it ought to be partaken of. It ought to be enjoyed. It ought to be around the table because it makes our bones straight and strong. It nourishes us and gives us the strength that we need. It promotes conversation. And the scripture says that we ought to fast and we ought to feast. In fasting, there's lessons that can't be taught anywhere else. When several months ago, almost a year ago now, Gary and Scott McLeod and I met with Topher to talk about maybe his future in leading worship at Fondren. And he was in the middle of a 10-day fast because he was ahead of us. He was already praying about it. So we thought it would be a great idea. Pastors have lots of wisdom. We thought it would be a great idea to take him to lunch to talk about his future. And he was in the middle of this 10-day fast. He was hungry and grouchy. And we just savored it all, man, the aroma and the texture. We talked about it as it turned over on our taste buds. But, you know, he was seeking 
He was seeking God's direction. That's a great reason to fast. Have you ever done that? Have you ever abstained from food altogether for a period or something in your life? I know someone who's staying away from Diet Coke. They're on day, they were on day four yesterday. Severe mood swings, unprovoked acts of aggression, <laughs> probable terrorist attacks. But when you, when you abstain from something, you're saying, hey, I'm going to seek God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deny myself. And it reminds you, of an appetite, and we ought to we ought to fast. Remember what I talked about a couple of weeks ago when we talked about mind, body, will, and soul, and we talked about the body, and we said in one word, appetite. And the Greeks would say that reason should direct, appetite should obey. But in a land of plenty, in a land of wealth, and in a land where we worship comfort and ease, it's so easy to go too far on that. But it's a gift. And yes, there's time for feasting. One of the worst things for me is when I'm at a table and I'm eating something maybe we shouldn't, you know. Cheesecake, 850 cal- calories. And somebody's already talking about the calories. Don't do that in that moment, right? That's total sabotage. I mean, if you're eating it, just eat it and enjoy it and deal with that stuff later, right? But there's times when we ought to feast. And you know, Jesus loves a good party. Oh, church, we ought to hear that. In our religious convention, the way we practice with our busyness and our stress, we need room for celebration, room for feasting. But most of our meals should be somewhere in between where we sit and we eat and we do it as an act of worship. But when we get full or close to full, we push back. We say, enough. And in that moment, that's a great moment. Have you ever done this? That's a moment to say, who? Who needs food? Who else needs what we have? I know a family in our church, I won't blow their cover, but they're taking it to another level. They're not just taking extra canned goods and dropping them off at the church or a local shelter. They're actually taking them and having conversations with real people. And a couple of weeks ago, their table at home had a couple of guests Hmm. Uncomfortable, isn't it? When we think of hospitality, we think of our state because we're the state of hospitality. We tout on being friendly and inviting others in and being welcoming, right? But it's more like the sentiment from the hotel industry. There's like a major in college. I think Southern Miss has a program, hospitality management. And that's what we've reduced it to. But you see in the scripture, this freaks me out, maybe you. But in Scripture, most of the time, hospitality has to deal with strangers. People that aren't like us. Different skin color. Different orientation. Different background. Table's a place to eat. And a table's a place to express gratitude. You ever grow up in that type of family where there's a leader, some sort of patriarch at the table, and he says, we're going to go around and tell what we're thankful for? You know who grew up in a home like that? Martin Luther King Jr. His dad was pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And every meal that they partook as a family, he would come as a little boy. He'd sit at the table with siblings, and they would have to come with a scripture passage, And they would have to come to the table with something going on in the world, some sort of current event. 
Now, think about that. Think about that. Martin Luther King Jr. Can you, can you see, are you with me? Can you see how that shaped him? Can you see, parents, how we can shape our young people, our little people? And there's probably no other environment quite like this one. Around the table. I want to say two things about gratitude. It's a little, maybe a little different way to think about it. But gratitude is, is, is in a way saying that, that we are small. Years ago, I read a parable about a little boy. In fact, I, I read it to my little boy at the time. There's a parable about this little boy who had a choice. He had a big choice. In fact, that was the choice. He could be big or he could be small. He could be gigantic or he could be minuscule. And y'all know any little boys? What did he choose? Say it, church. He chose to be big. Any boy is going to choose, any little boy is going to choose to be bigger than the world. And in this parable, this boy was granted his wish. He chose bigness and big is what he was. What did he do in his bigness? Man, he went from continent to continent. He could brush up against the clouds. He waded through the ocean like it was small ponds. He took whales and put them in the palm of his hand like they were little tadpoles. He grabbed a California redwood and twiddled it into his mouth like a toothpick. He needed to take a nap. He laid down somewhere around Nebraska and Ohio and flopped an arm and elbow over into the Dakotas and Canada. He was big. It was splendid. It was magnificent. It was exhilarating. And then it grew boring. And this little boy dreamt in his room that he would not have chosen big with all of its encumbrances. But what if he had chosen to be small? And in his smallness, it took him where? It took him to the backyard. What if in the backyard, his own backyard, it would be like the Amazon rainforest? His dog would be large like the woolly mammoth. That he could ride on the back of a butterfly. That a a small tub of ice to him, because he was so small, would be like an Antarctic, like an aquatic playground. If he had chosen to be small. Gratitude is never about us being big. In fact, Paul would tell people in the church who struggle with pride because pride breaks the back of what Jesus wants to do. For when Jesus came and ushered in a whole new kingdom, He said, it's not your long robes. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. Hey, you religious people, it's not your long robes in setting yourself apart from people. In fact, it's all of us understanding the commonality that we have. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize that they're small. They're not big. And Paul would tell those in Corinth, don't let a man think more highly of himself than he ought to. And what do you do when you're around someone and they're thinking more highly of themselves than they should? What do you want to do? You want to recoil. You want to resist them. You want to run from them. You don't really want to hang out around a table with them. You see, Jesus calls us to be like Him. Ephesians 5, 1, be an imitator of me. Romans 8, be conformed to the image of Jesus. And it was said about Jesus in Philippians 2, though, He was great. 
Though he lived in heaven, he came to earth. And though he was a king, though he knew royalty, he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Gratitude says that we're small, that we know our place, that we're grateful. And when we're small, when we see things bigger around us, if you notice that, if you get too fancy and too big for your britches, it's hard to be grateful. Everything around you just seems smaller than it should, huh? But when you choose to be small, when you choose to be proportionate to the person that God has made you, you're a lot more thankful. You see things. You're more perceptive. Things are bigger and more beautiful around you. Gratitude says that we are small. And gratitude says that we can't have it all. Look with me, church, and help me if you will, since we're around the table this morning. This slide, this passage is in three different slides, and I would love for you to read it aloud with me. You know how when you read with a group, you've got to go a little slower? But uh, let's, let's do this together. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey His commands. Yes, He humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So obey the commands of the Lord, your God, by walking in His ways and fearing Him. For the Lord, your God, is bringing you into a good land of flowing streams and pools of water, with fountains and springs that gush out in the valleys and hills. It is a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines, fig trees and pomegranates, of olive oil and honey. It is a land where food is plentiful and nothing is lacking. It is a land where iron is as common as stone and copper is abundant in the hills. When you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. But that is the time to be careful. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey His commands, regulations, and decrees that I'm giving you today. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Does that say anything to you? Do you think that says anything to the church in America? You can't have it all. And here's what's interesting about the passage. No sugarcoating here. Some of you think, oh, God's allowing this to happen. You're in a time right now of testing, of humbling, of refining, of discipline. And you might fall back on a soft pedal type of theology saying that God is allowing it. But you know what? He could be causing it to happen. And the end goal, Hebrews 12 would tell us, is not even the discipline... The end goal is the love. But the love of God is not always seen in the land where things are gushing and flowing. You with me? That the love could actually be in the times of not plenty, but in the times of lack, in the times of wanting. What do you do? What do you do when you you got a lot? What did the passage say? 
Answer me. I'm just going to stay here silent. When you have plenty, what do you do with God? Forget Him. You don't remember God. I heard it from a preacher years ago, and I weave it into conversations a lot. We, we tend to forget the things that we should remember. And we remember the things that we ought to forget. Above all, God wants us to remember Him and to be grateful. And we have to be very, very careful. If you make $25,000 a year, you're among the richest people in the world. Now, twenty-five grand ain't going to help you keep up with the Joneses. But you're rich. And in our plenty, we've got to make sure that we don't forget. There's a final thing. Around the table we eat, around the table we display our gratitude. And the table is a place for you and I to belong. Now, a lot goes into a family meal. Have you noticed that? Somebody, usually the matriarch, the female, the one who needs a lot more love and gratitude, works really hard, right? Planning the menu, purchasing the food, preparing the meal, setting the table, setting the tone, encouraging dialogue, managing it all around the table. Have you noticed in family mealtime that families around the table, there's no org chart, no seating chart, no... Uh, systematic way to do things, yet we typically sit in the same place. Is your family like that? You, everybody sitting, dad's here maybe, mom's here, junior's right here. There's usually a pecking order, and we, we keep coming back to the same place. There's something instinctual within us that says, i got to have a chair at the table. i got to have my chair. This is my chair. This reflects me. Don't sit in my chair. But I'm a part of this family. It's a place to belong. I couldn't help but think about our church in our lives when I think about a place to belong. Because I I believe God is stretching me and wants to stretch me and my family, but also you. Quickly, I want to share with you two illustrations from Scripture about this idea of having a place at the table. Literally, at the table from Scripture. David, you know, was a king. He was a warrior. He was a shepherd. He was young, and when he was young, and particularly handsome, wise, and popular, he was looked upon by a king, an old king named Saul. You know this story? And Saul looked at young David with envy. And he had a plan. He said, the scripture tells us that he was going to invite David to sit at his table. Then he was going to kill him. Pretty serious plan. I mean, a table ought to be about love and fellowship. It's a big deal. If, if, if you know a king and that, that super, super king, mega king, invites you to his palace, to his place, to have a seat at his table, that's a big deal. And that table, even though it's a place of royalty, it's supposed to be a place of love and fellowship. But he was plotting to kill the one that he was jealous of. David, you know this, was tipped off, so he didn't show up, would you? You're going to go to a table or you're going to be killed? David says, "Uh uh-uh. You can't touch this. Stays away. 
He pulls his MC hammer because somebody tipped him off. Somebody said, hey, he's going to touch you. He's going to kill you. And David stays away. Jonathan, David's best friend, when he found out about it, you see, King Saul was Jonathan's dad. His loyalties weren't divided at that point. David was his best friend. He was expressly concerned about God's design for his best friend, David. And a unique, deep friendship that most of us could be jealous of. Jonathan refuses to come to his father's table. I'm sorry, the scripture actually tells us that he leaves the table in an act of defiance. And David, after, after old man King Saul had died, and after even Jonathan had died, David says to his men, because he's important now, he's got men, and he says to his men, do they have any descendants left over? Violent times back then. People died in droves. David says, anybody left and people around him thought, oh, David, come on, you're a good king. You love God. You're a man after God's own heart. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna bring revenge. You're going to exact revenge. Really, David? Probably around a table. That's what you're going to do. Is that right? And David says in this beautiful scripture passage, he's looking for some descendants. He's, uh, he's saying, hey, where are they? And if you could put that passage up, I don't think we've labeled it, but it's from Second Samuel. I'll restore to you the land that belonged to your grandfather, and you will always eat at my table. Who's he talking about? He's talking about a young man, the lone descendant, Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. How about that? There's beauty in history, isn't there? A guy that he could have left alone or he could have even exacted revenge on. He said, let's go out of the way to find someone who needs a seat at the table. And he's got it. You got to know that that young man was scared to death until he learned of David's good intentions. A final story. Luke 15. Familiar to so many of you. A table like this probably except not from Restoration Hardware. But three seats. A seat for a father, a seat for a son, a seat for another son. We would say younger son. We would say elder son. And younger son, if you read the birthright books, the order, I really believe uh, those things. But the young son was free-spirited. Are you the youngest in your family, youngest of your siblings? You're probably a little free-spirited. And this young guy said, hey, I don't need y'all anymore. What I need, Dad, is my inheritance, your money that's due me when you die. But I'll take it now. Forget compound interest. I'll take it now and I'm going to go and I'm going to go and I'm going to live large. I'm going to live like I want to live. You guys aren't singing 80 rock ballads around the table and having fun. I want to be gone. He does that. He goes away and you've got to know that there's an old man sitting, or staring rather, at an empty chair. And some of you, that's your story. Maybe right now there's an empty chair at your table. Maybe it's a loss, some type of separation or estrangement. Maybe a divorce, a death. It's something really hard. 
So you today, you can feel me when I say that this old man looked at an empty chair and his heart, it ached. It hurt. The son comes home. The Bible says he came to his senses. He comes home. The father runs out to meet him. He kisses him, popular to do back then. He kills the fatted calf. It's a time for feast and celebration. He kisses him and gives him his best clothes and the best ring from Carter Jewelers. 50% off the lowest discount price because of war, pestilence, famine, whatever happened. And he gives them this amazing ring from Carter Jewelers and they come back in and they sit. And there's this brother and that brother. And everybody ought to be happy. But before long, there's an empty chair because the guy sitting at this chair, he thought he deserved to be there and this one didn't. In fact, he took it upon himself to kind of be like God. Don't ever try to be like God. He tried to be like God by telling his dad who really deserved to be at the table. Scripture tells us that he leaves and that dad, really the story closes, if you will, with that dad talking to that brother about that empty chair that's about to be. Here's what I want to tell you. There's a lot of angles to this story. Tim Keller kills it. But we see a father who cares about every empty chair. And this morning I ask you, are you spending time around the table with people that you love? Is it festive? Is it fun? Are you eating the bread of joy? And I can't help but think that as a church family, that our future in many ways is not in rows like we are today. We'll always worship together. We'll probably always worship together on Sunday. But what about your table at home? Susan and I are going to go on vacation this week. And she can tell you it scares her to death that every time I go away, I come back with some idea, most of which are stupid, that inflicts pain on her, inconvenience. But I'm thinking about our own lives because, you know, I'm not getting any younger. And we're thinking about the money that we're saving and the money that we're giving and the way God is blessing us. We're looking back. Right now, we're looking back at the times that He's tested us and humbled us, refined us and disciplined us. But we're thinking about our lives and even our very table. And we're thinking about some of you. We're not good at our church of counting numbers But over the last couple of months, there's hundreds of folks that have said, I'd love to connect at Fondren Church. And what I love, I'm looking at some of you right now. Some of you said, hey, Robert, hey, Gary, hey, Laura, hey, whoever, we'll serve. We'll help. We'll open up our home. We'll we'll create a room at the table. But we need more. Some of you think, well, I'm not a Bible scholar. I don't have all of my life together. You know, I'm not sure that God wants a clean table as much as he wants a messy table. In fact, next week, come back if you can. We're going to have a longer table and a couple more chairs. And we're going to hear some stories from some of you. It could be a little messy, but I think it's beautiful. To hear from some of you of what God has done and what God is doing. 
And that's what ought to happen around the table. I don't think a lot about this, but church experts, I read this a couple weeks ago, they say that six people have to come in your front door before one person stays. What does that mean? They were talking about, they were talking about me. That means my preaching is really bad. What does that mean? That means people need to get out of rows and into circles and around tables and people have to find friendship, share life with. Don't you need that? Don't you want that if this is going to be your church? A lot of conversations, a lot of stuff can happen around the table. Eating and gratitude and really having a place to belong. Here's your assignment. I'm going to stop. Go home today. And read, read Isaiah 58. Start in verse 3 and read through verse 12. And then read Luke 14. That part where Jesus talks about the table and who ought to be at the table. And we think so-and-so ought to be at the table. But if we really want to be kingdom builders... This is the kind of parties we would throw, and these are the people that we invite to the table. And you may not want to read Luke 14 because it's very, very convicting. But here's what I'd like for you to do, and not all will, and maybe no, no one will, and it'll crush my spirit if nobody does. But I'm hoping that some of you will read it, and God will stir something up, and maybe there'll be an idea. You have no idea how we're going to implement it, but maybe you're getting closer than I am. But I just wonder what it would look like for you and I to live out Luke 14. And you read Isaiah 58, it says that be glad that you've got some food to eat. But don't ever, ever, ever forget those who don't. And we're called to feed the hungry. What would it look like, church, if we've moved away from stuff we used to think so much about and we thought about love and we think about love, we think about a table, and who can be around it. And I would say to you that Jesus wants us, no matter what we're going through, He wants us to eat the bread of joy. I am going to stand up now. Topher and Josh Brister, Jay and those guys are going to make their way up now. And in a moment, they're going to play some music behind us and lead us in song. But around the room now, there's going to be, I think, eight of our folks um, gathering to the four corners, leaders who will come over. They'll take the elements. In the basket, there is unleavened bread. And in the cups, there's, there's wine or there's juice. If you're an adult, it's your choice. But this is our way to observe the Lord's table. The longest prayer in Scripture, I don't know if you know this, the longest prayer in Scripture is in John 17. And it was prayed by Jesus at a table. He was looking ahead. And He was talking about our love and unity, that for us to really experience love and unity, it won't be randomly staring at the back of somebody's head like we do on Sunday morning. Now that's a nice looking head probably in front of you, isn't it? Just look at the noggin in front of you. If somebody's behind you, turn now and look at them with a funny face or something. Startle them. Just startle them a little bit. You see that funny face, that startling? You see, that's a little closer to the Jesus party, to the Jesus life.
to the kingdom that he wants us to live out. Fun, merriment, a mess around the table. But what we have in common is that we need him. You know, what I found is I could sit around the table and it could be tough if somebody's uh, enjoying it all and very successful. The bills are paid, the roof doesn't leak, the marriage is okay, the kids are healthy. But then you have someone sitting over here, over here, or maybe just right next to them and they're going through that humbling, testing, refining, disciplining time. But Jesus would say that we can relate, that we can share life together. Now, I don't know how it works exactly, but those who rejoice... That we rejoice with those rejoicing. We weep with those who are weeping. But we're all, we all come to the foot of the cross. We all say, Jesus, we need your forgiveness. If our folks would take their place uh, around the four corners, um, I think John and Allison are going to be at one place, Brent and Scarlett over here, Mark and Becky in one corner, uh, somebody in the back. And uh, we're going to, in a moment, stand. And here's what we want you to do. There's going to be some people, I'm trusting on on this, they're going to prompt you. They're going to nod or maybe lift up their hand to uh, motion to you to make your way to the elements. And what you'll do is you'll take first the basket and pick up some bread. Um, If you're like me, you're kind of, you got some germ issues. It's a phobia. Jesus is working on me. But you just want to touch one piece of bread, pick it up. And with the corner of that, either into the wine or to the juice, just dip it in. Your fingers aren't going to go into that, are they? And you're going to, you're going to, they're going to say to you, like here, Mary Ellen's going to say, this is Christ's body broken for you. And it'd be great if you were to say amen. And then Josh is there and you dip into the wine or to the juice and he'll say, this is Christ's blood shed for you. And back to him, you say amen and you partake. As you make your way back to your seat. And this is the church remembering what we ought to remember. That we need Him. That He has created a culture of fellowship around a table of us saying, we're a family. He's our leader. 